Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Forgotten is a production of iHeartMedia and Unusual Productions. Before we start, this podcast contains accounts which some listeners will find disturbing, but without them, the story can't be fully understood. Please take care while listening. Previously on Forgotten... I said, it's just that we're bringing a lot. Six daughters. I mean, this case tells me how organized it is because she was abducted. She was kept in a place. Someone was guarding her. The important thing about these uh, computer schools is that the young ladies were putting their personal data into the questionnaires and their pictures were taken became very easy for someone at another end, whoever this information was being forwarded to, to let this operate as a catalog, you know, a catalog of potential victims. When FBI Special Agent in charge of El Paso, Hardrick Crawford, arrived at the border and took note of the women's murders in Juarez, his first thought was that a lone serial killer was at work there, perhaps even an American. But then this connection emerged between Lilia Alejandra Andrade and multiple other victims to the Echo Computer School. And it started to seem like whoever was killing the women wasn't acting alone. This sent Diana Washington Valdez on a mission to find out as much as she could about Echo. I learned two things about the schools. They were used to get background on potential victims 
because you fill out a questionnaire, your, your name, where you live, your age, the neighborhood, you know, whether you're a student or you work in a business somewhere. And um, it was like impossible to find out who really owned these schools. In fact, it was the FBI who had gathered the initial tip-off about the computer schools through their informant network in Juarez. And according to the intelligence, the computer schools were just the tip of the iceberg. There were other businesses in Juarez where the women were held after they'd been abducted. But because these crimes were happening in another country, the Bureau couldn't take any direct action. And so the FBI sent that information over to the Chihuahua authorities who had the primary jurisdiction over these crimes. That information seemed extremely promising. The kind of intelligence that could lead to arrests, to justice, and to the end of almost a decade of killings. Now, the Mexican authorities did go into the computer schools and took out a bunch of documents and software and that sort of thing. And they see we're looking at this as possible evidence. So where did that investigation lead? In this episode, we'll find out. And we'll visit downtown Juarez, the place where many of the young women were last seen alive. I'm Oz Veloshin. And I'm Monica Ortiz Uribe. This is Forgotten. The Women of Juarez. Voy a crear un canto para poder existir. Para mover la tierra, los hombres y sobrevivir. Yo no nací sin causa. Yo no nací sin fe. Mi corazón pega fuerte para gritar a los que no sienten así perseguir a la felicidad. Diana Washington Valdez has seen promising leads evaporate into nothing before. The physical evidence from Lilia Alejandra's autopsy, the witnesses. This time, she didn't want to take any chances. So she teamed up with a group of fellow reporters to lead a parallel investigation into the businesses named in the FBI intelligence. The Echo Computer School, where Lilia had been due to start class a few days after she was abducted, but also several other businesses. We did a what we call a media raid, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Several reporters and I went to the places that were identified. These are focos rojos, we call them in Spanish, places of concern. So we went from place to place asking, like, can we interview the owners here? And this has been alleged that uh, girls are being screened here, girls are being grabbed here. With the cameras rolling, the business owners played along with Diana's questions. The Echo Computer School categorically denied involvement in the murders. But after Diana had gone, it was made clear to her that she should never come back. How was that message that your media attention was unwelcome conveyed to you as reporters? We were threatened with arrests. There were arrest warrants issued for, for three of us. And this came from the police or? Yes, Chihuahua police. And it was because the owners complained about uh, the accuse of trespassing. But no, we would ask for permission. It seemed clear that the Juarez authorities didn't welcome Diana's assistance in their investigation. And what was striking was that the businesses named by the informants were not in some far-flung reach of the city. They were right in the heart of Juarez's downtown, 
a place that young women like Lily Alejandra and Sagrario Gonzalez pass through often. You're 16, 17-year-old. You went downtown to do an errand for your parents or to try in some new shoes, to apply for a job, and push, you know, you're grabbed and lured and you're murdered. To date, I mean, downtown Juarez continues the very center of the city. This is where girls disappear without anybody seeing anything or hearing anything, you know. Mm-hmm. It continues to be that way. Yes. To this day, downtown Juarez is an extremely dangerous place for young women. In January of 2020, a women's activist called Isabel Cabanillas de la Torre was shot in the head there as she cycled home from meeting some friends at a bar. But Juarez hasn't always been this way. Monica, you spent quite a lot of time in in Juarez when you were growing up. When I was a kid, my memories of Juarez are very pleasant and joyful. We would go there after church with my great-grandmother to a restaurant that's ah, maybe a mile away from the International Bridge to have a big lunch there. And right before crossing back, we'd stop at a gas station and pick up a crate of glass bottle sodas that you couldn't find in El Paso. But today, I prefer to stay away from Juarez. I can't believe I'm saying it because 10 years ago, as a young reporter, I would kind of scoff at people who would tell me, yeah, I don't go to Juarez anymore, it's too dangerous. And I would get kind of angry because I would say, there's there's still life over there, there's still families, people, we should interact. Like, Juarez to me was the other half of my identity. Mm. To me, it was like they were turning their back on our sister city. And I have a different understanding of it now. The downtown part of Juarez is close to the mouth of the Paso del Norte Bridge that connects the city to El Paso. Migrants from Central America and elsewhere arrive here on their journey to seek asylum in the U.S. It's also one of the most dangerous parts of Juarez. But Monica suggested we visit to get a better picture of the final moments of the dozens of women who've disappeared there, seemingly into thin air. In the car on the way over, we come up with a cover story in case anyone asks us what we're doing there. It's just the lookouts are also there just if they get a bad vibe from your presence. Like, if we act casual and tell them, yeah, well, yeah, we're reporting on, on, the, on the migrant caravan, that kind of yeah. um, eases that. But, yeah, if we're going around looking at the missing posters of women and we're asking a lot of questions, they might send someone to scare us off. It turns out that it's not just police who threaten people who ask too many questions. It's also the gangs who control downtown Juarez. And their business interests range from human trafficking to drug dealing to murder. So we're here in downtown Juarez and Yeah, on this street just behind us was where one of the Echo computer stores had an office. And this is... This is ground zero for missing women in Juarez. Right down here where everyone is. Yes. You'd think there's a lot of witnesses around, but also there's just so much activity going on. 
that, you know, if someone gets into somebody's car, um, even if it's by force. Um, correct. Uh, so imagine coming here as a, as a young woman from somewhere else in Mexico arriving. I mean, it's such a maze. If we weren't with you, we'd be completely lost. That's a good way to describe it. Downtown Juarez is like a maze. This is where the unknown starts. This is where women were seen for the last time, and after that, the mystery begins. We're on a street called Mina that's like the central archery for most bus routes traveling east and west across the city. This is the spot where Sagrario Gonzalez likely made her final transfer 20 years ago. The sidewalks are a blur of shoppers and vendors selling cheap jewelry and pirated DVDs. The smell of engine exhaust mixes with food being cooked on open grills. And it's loud. There's music coming seemingly from everywhere. But there's also something else more sinister just beneath the surface. There's a, um, a brothel here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an, it's a, well, it says it's a Tangas nightclub, which is Thong's nightclub. And I think there's a hotel on the upper floor, and the nightclub is on the lower floor. And it's on the block right next to the fabric store where one of the young women was last seen. Many cities have red light districts. Amsterdam, Tokyo... London. But what's striking about Juarez is that there's no separation between places that sell sex and the transportation hub and shops selling everyday necessities. just seeing on that lamppost. So it doesn't take long before we come across these missing posters. The flyer for a missing woman. She looked maybe between 14 and 16 years old. The black and white flyers bearing pictures of young women's faces are not the only evidence of what happened here. Also on lampposts are pink squares with black crosses overlaid. Each one has been painted by a family grieving a lost daughter. Well, it used to be that every time the body of a murdered woman was discovered in Juarez, the families of previous victims and activists would come out and paint these crosses as a reminder to the city that these murders were happening. While most people in downtown Juarez hustle by on their way, every so often you'll notice a man standing still. Um, I think there's a lookout over here, so let's In a sea of people moving back and forth, they're not hard to spot. In Spanish, they're called halcones, hawks, birds of prey. They're the on-the-ground intelligence for organized crime, gangs, cartels. What made you think he was a little um, Just because the way the, the stance. Sometimes it's just a sense that you get. I get a little bit nervous about um, staying in one place for a long time, especially just because we stick out. And uh, especially when you start looking at the missing flyers. That's a guy that's trying to spook us. 
He's yeah. mimicking a gun with his hand. Yeah. Should we get out of here, do you think? We did get out of there. But young women like Sagrario Gonzalez didn't have that choice. They had to pass through every day. And it's devastating to think that that daily commute could make them so vulnerable. It's also easy to see why they might stop to sign up for a computer class that promised the kind of skills that might help them leave this place behind. And in turn, how that aspiration could lead directly to them being spotted, selected, tracked, and ultimately killed. But I was also curious about what it was like to be a journalist in this environment, where you had to have a cover story and bring discreet equipment just to ask questions about missing young women, whose fate was obvious from the posters and the hand-painted crosses adorning almost every other lamppost. When we come back, We go to meet a reporter who knows Juarez from the inside out and whose colleague paid the ultimate price for asking too many questions. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, 
The Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving downtown Juarez, Monica and I get back in the car to hear from one of the city's most celebrated journalists about what it's like to report here. We're headed to the local daily newspaper here in Juarez called El Diario to speak with Sandra Rodriguez Nieto. El Diario suffered uh, three casualties during the drug war, two reporters and one photographer, if I remember correctly. Sandra can tell us about that. Hola, ¿qué tal? Venimos a ver a Sandra Rodríguez. ¿Tienen cita con ella? Sí. ¿Cuál es su nombre? Mónica Ortiz. After a brief registration, we were shown upstairs to Sandra Rodriguez Nieto's office. Sandra has won multiple international awards, including the Daniel Pearl Award for Outstanding International Investigative Reporting. In 2014, she was a Neiman Fellow at Harvard. On the walls of her office are some gruesome photographs, including a dead man strung up by his arms and wearing a pig mask. He was one of the thousands of victims of the drug war when El Chapo's Sinaloa cartel was moving in on Juarez in 2008. The man's body is displayed as a message. Don't squeal. Also on Sandra's wall is a map of the city. And we pointed out the part of downtown Juarez where we just come from. What's that street? Mina. 
Mina. That's where the camiones, the buses stop. And that's where a lot of the girls were seen for the last time. We were right there. Yeah. It's a very, very, very dangerous place of the city. I wouldn't recommend you guys to go back. Oh, that's certainly a song where they have lookouts. That's how they control the area through intimidation. In the last decade, a total of 29 journalists have been murdered in Mexico, more than any other country, including Syria. Mexico's record for solving those crimes is abysmal. Nearly all go unpunished. And when journalists try to solve crimes themselves, they often become the targets, something Sandra is reminded of daily. Actually, Armando's desk is that? Is it right there? And it's going to be actually the 10th anniversary this month. 10 years, can you imagine? 10 years has been like this. Right outside Sandra's office is the desk of a reporter called Armando Rodriguez, preserved as he left it. His desktop computer is there with dust-covered keys. And there's also a dry bunch of yellow marigolds left in memory of him. Armando Rodriguez was our colleague. He was covering the crime bit for 20 years in Juarez. So he knew everything. And he got killed in 2008 when he was taking his daughter out to school. What does it feel like for you to sit here in your office looking every day at an empty desk belonging to one of your colleagues? The point is not living with an empty desk, but living with the idea of impunity. It drives you crazy, not to know who did it and why. What's it like to work as a, as a journalist here? You get used to it. You get used to it. You get to what? To the danger, to the stress, to the possibility of getting killed, don't we? That's where you and I <laughs> differ because my home is on the other side where I can go home and not worry about that. Whereas you live here uh, the full day, every day. Well, I will say that you are being very humble because you know that, I mean, you hear more stories, you hear more terror, you might be more scared, etc. And you keep on coming. We live here. I know, I think I know the place is dynamic and I think I know more. And that makes me feel a little bit safer. <laughs> but that's how we protect ourselves, I think. That's the story that we tell ourselves. Yeah, we tell ourselves different versions of the same story. Yeah. Sandra Rodriguez could take virtually any assignment she wanted. And yet she chooses to work here in Juarez. She chooses to walk past Armando's empty desk every day. That was something that was starting to stand out to me about this story. How, in spite of the enormous obstacles and dangers... Reporters keep on pushing to get towards the truth. I remember you telling me, Monica, about uh, your mother who really didn't want you to come to Juarez to report. Uh, and I know you first went there to report on the drug war. H how did you first get involved with reporting on the women's murders? I got an email from one of the family organizations, basically a red alert there's a young woman 
who's, I don't know, uh, 16, 17 years old. She's missing. And please help us find her. We think something bad has happened to her. And so I, I from, from there, I reached out to the girl's mother, Susana. Susana Monte Rodriguez. And met her at her house in Juarez and told her, take me down the route that your daughter, Lupita, would take to come home every day. This was just days after her daughter had gone missing. And she was armed with her own stack of black and white flyers announcing her daughter's disappearance. We got off of the bus. We walked through the same streets in downtown Juarez where you and I walked, handing out these leaflets, putting them up on the lampposts. And she walked me down that street, Mina. And she said, this is the street my daughter was last seen. Mina Street is the street you took me to. It's not far from where Paula Flores and her family began their search for Sagrario back in 1998. Eerie is not a strong enough word for the similarities between Paula talking about the search the night after Sagrario goes missing and Susana describing her family's search. The switch goes off and nothing else in the world matters. Not their own safety, not the safety of their living relatives. They have a one-track mission, which is to locate and rescue their daughters. Back at her house in Lomas de Poleo, Paula Flores remembers that April day in 1998 when Sagrario failed to come home from work and the desperate search that followed. Every day I would stand there at the door and that comforted me, seeing her getting off the bus and coming home. That day, like any other day, I was waiting for her and I began to despair when she didn't arrive. We knew that she had worked and that she had left at the time everyone left, but no one saw anything. And I tell you that very night we began searching at the Red Cross in the hospitals on the streets searching for her. That night I grabbed all the photos I had of my daughter. I would pass them out at gas stations saying, I'm looking for my daughter, can you please help me find her? There were nights I would step outside and I would shout her name. I would run around the house and shout her name with all my strength. In the silence of the night, I felt she could hear me, so I would call to my daughter. Paula and her family searched and searched, but they didn't find Sagrario. And they didn't get much help from the authorities either. We filed the report, and initially they didn't accept it. They claimed she had run off with her boyfriend. What they always say, even today. No, I told them. Her boyfriend is with us, helping us look for her. After so much insisting, the police finally made up a missing report. But they did nothing. They did nothing to look for her. The police did nothing. The police did ultimately open the missing persons report. But... That was about as far as they went. At one point, they told Paula they couldn't search for Sagrario because they didn't have any available vehicles. And it turned out this was a common experience for families whose daughters had gone missing. So much so that a protest camp of mothers formed outside the police station 
no estaban haciendo nada, no la estaban buscando. No. They weren't looking for her, they weren't doing anything. Para entonces nosotros... So by then we started to get to know the people protesting at the sit-in outside the police station. We met this lady, Esther Chávez Cano. She started asking us about Sagrario's case while my daughter was still missing. She was the one who told us on that occasion that the attorney general was right there at the station in a meeting. She said, you want to see him? I said, yes. I want to see him and tell him to look for my daughter, implore him, beg him. She said, we'll have to go in by force. When we come back, the outcome of that confrontation and Esther Chavez Cano, a Juarez accountant who began to create a ledger of the missing women. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims for a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. 
thought they were going to kill me. So I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Esther Chavez Cano. Who is she, Monica? Esther was one of the first people to really notice these murders and disappearances. She was an accountant who moved to Ciudad Juarez and she joined the editorial board of El Diario. Esther stood no more than five feet tall. She wore her hair short and with these perfect golden highlights. Sometimes she liked to wear pearls. And it turns out Esther was a big fan of good whiskey and good wine. <laughs> there is a phrase in Spanish that I think describes Esther perfectly, and that's chiquita pero picosa, which means small but fierce. She was a single, independent woman who forged a career in post-World War II Mexico. And this was at a time when it was unheard of for a woman to leave the house before she was married. But she did it, and she climbed the corporate ladder working as an executive-level accountant in these multinational companies. She's, she's just a badass. I love the way she lived her life. And she moves to Juarez right before her 50th birthday. And so she's reading the newspaper on a daily basis, and this is how she comes across these headlines detailing the disappearances and murders of women all across the city. She's an accountant, so record-keeping comes natural to her. And so what she does is she starts clipping out these articles from the newspaper and compiling them into an archive. It's report after report narrating a variation on the same theme where the victim was found, her age, what she was wearing, the autopsy findings. 
And Esther and a group of friends started visiting the families of the missing and murdered women that Esther would read about in the paper. They would call attention to these cases by staging sit-ins at the governor's office. She didn't worry about being polite or let's wait until tomorrow or cross our fingers and hope it turns out okay. No, she was a no-nonsense, no-bullshit sort of person who got things done. In Esther... Paula had found her match and an important ally. Together, they forced their way into the police station, brushing off officials and members of staff who tried to stop them. And finally, they got in front of the attorney general, Arturo Chavez Chavez. Once we were in, the first thing I did was kneel down. I just asked him one question. I asked him if he had any daughters, and he said yes, he did. I said, then I hope you can put yourself in my shoes. My daughter is missing. I was crying and begged him to look for my daughter. I told him they were doing nothing to find her. I remember that my husband tried to lift me by the arm, telling me not to kneel. I said, no, for my daughter, I'll kneel before anybody. To everyone's surprise, Chavez Chavez listened to everything Paola had to say. And after some silence, he promised to help the investigation and search for Sagrario. There was a moment of hope, but it soon faded. He offered nothing but words. The authorities always treated us like that. Paola took the investigation back into her own hands and even went on to identify a prime suspect. We'll come back to him. For now, the question is, why was the official response so underwhelming? Why did women like Paula and Esther have to become heroes? Well, remember that evidence that authorities took out of the computer school? Here's Diana again. They just, you know, they got the photo up, they see, we found nothing. That was it, you know. Not only did the authorities threaten Diana with arrest for trespassing, She claims they didn't lead a proper investigation into the computer schools themselves. And this mirrored the way they treated the victims' families. There was no help for these families. The authorities made fun of them, defamed the daughters, in many cases calling them prostitutes. They would say that they were out at hours of the night when they should be at home, or that they ran off with a boyfriend, the mythical boyfriend that didn't exist. And it didn't matter if this was demonstrably untrue. Remember, in Sagrario's case, the authorities said she'd probably run off with her boyfriend, even though Andres himself was actively involved in the search. This became just a very routine way for the authorities to explain what was happening. And yet we know from practically more than 90% of the murders, most of the victims were out doing errands. They were going to school. They were on their way to apply for a job in the daytime. The thing is, victim blaming excuses the police from having to search for the real culprit. It also reinforces this notion that people can literally get away with murder. And it further traumatizes the families. Diana told us about the case of Irma Perez, whose daughter Olga went missing in downtown Juarez in 1995 and who was discovered murdered later that year. 
she had all this pain in her over her daughter's death and the way the authorities treated the investigation and the way they defamed her daughter. And yet she says, you know, her daughter died once when she was murdered, and she died again when the authorities then started to defame her and blame her and say all sorts of things about her that were simply not true uh, in order for the authorities to, I guess, justify their their lack of investigation, their inefficiency, their corruption. Corruption. It's a heavy charge. Incompetence is one thing, but outright dishonesty, that's something else altogether. But Diana chooses her words for a reason. Back at her house in El Paso, she pulls out an old Motorola cell phone, the kind with buttons and a pull-out antenna. And she starts to tell us about a call she received while she was reporting on the computer schools that haunts her to this day. The phone is ringing. I pick it up. I don't recognize the telephone number that it's coming from, but it's coming, it appears, from Mexico. And I hear this this noise in the background, a newscast in English, and then all of a sudden, there's this electric saw sound coming in. We know that people get dismembered (laughs) over there. The other thing that made that call scary was hearing this child voice saying, Mommy, no. Mommy, no. Mommy, no. That was the same call? Yes. Yeah, it went on for like six minutes. Six long minutes. The call was bad enough. But it was the discovery of where it originated that was truly terrifying. One of my friends uh, at a federal law enforcement agency, I won't say which one because it was was done as a favor to me, they took my phone uh, to try and see if they could trace that call and they traced it back to Mexican military intelligence. The authorities have the responsibility for solving these crimes. They are the ones that need to name the killers and bring them to justice. They have not done this, and perhaps never intended to do it. Diana had a virtuous mission. She was trying to do what the police weren't doing. She was trying to call out this wrongdoing, and for someone to come in and prevent her from doing that, how dare you? Why would someone within Mexican military intelligence place threatening calls to a U.S. journalist trying to find out who was killing the women in Juarez and why? Were they embarrassed by the international attention? Were they trying to protect the killer? Could they be involved themselves? Well, in 2001, something happened that shocked Juarez and shocked the world, and two men confessed to the crimes. That's on our next episode. I'm Osvaloshin. And I'm Monica Ortiz Uribe. See you next time. Yo no nací sin causa.
Forgotten, The Women of Juarez is co-hosted by me, Monica Ortiz Uribe. And me, Oswald Oshin. Forgotten is executive produced by me and Mangesh Hatikida. Our producers are Julian Weller and Katrina Norvell. Sound editing by Julian Weller and Jacopo Penzo. Lucas Riley is our story editor. Caitlin Thompson is our consulting producer. Production support from Emily Marinoff and Aaron Kaufman. Music by Leonardo Heblum and Jacobo Lieberman. Additional music by Aaron Kaufman. Carla Tassara is the voice actor for Paula Flores. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.